From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. On September 6, 1992, two young hikers from Anchorage arrived at the old Fairbanks City Bus number 142, a makeshift shelter located on the Stampede Trail, 25 miles west of Healy. They immediately noted a stench emanating from the bus. A red leg warmer swung from an alder branch near the vehicle's rear door. A note taped to the door terrified the hikers. It read, SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Chris McCandless. August? Question mark. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The young couple understood the implications of the note and the odor of decay and they remained outside the bus. A while later, four hunters arrived at the bus. One of the hunters looked through a window and saw a Remington rifle, a box of shells, several paperback books, a pair of torn jeans, cooking utensils, and an expensive backpack. He saw a blue sleeping bag on a bunk in the rear of the vehicle, and the bag appeared to contain something or someone. The hunter reached through the broken window and shook the bag. Then he walked to the other side of the bus and peered through another window, where he saw the head of a young man sticking out of the bag. Authorities later determined the 24-year-old man had died two and one-half weeks before the hunters and hikers found him. Chris McCandless wanted to test himself against the Alaska wilderness. Although he had excelled at nearly everything he'd tried in his young life, Chris did not adequately prepare for this ultimate challenge, and death was the price he paid for failure. Chris McCandless's ardent followers have turned him into a folk hero, but his story is not unusual, especially in Alaska. The lure of Alaska remains mythical to many, it's a place where you can escape civilization and dwell in the wilderness. For some, it's a destination where they think they can outrun the problems in their lives, while others believe a trip to the Alaska wilderness will pair their survival skills against raw nature in the most primitive ways. It seems Chris McCandless was trying to escape his life and test himself to prove he could subsist for several months in the wilds of the 49th state. 
Many young men and women before and after McCandless have died on foolhardy adventures in Alaska. Chris McCandless stands out from the others mainly because John Krakauer wrote a best-selling book about him and his journey. When news of McCandless's death reached the media, Outside Magazine sent Krakauer to investigate the story of a young man who had starved to death in the Alaska wilderness. McCandless and his plight intrigued Krakauer, and after he finished his article for Outside, Krakauer wrote the 1996 speculative nonfiction book Into the Wild about McCandless's life and travels. In 2007, Sean Penn directed a movie based on the book. Nearly everyone who has read the book or watched the movie has an opinion about Chris McCandless. Most Alaskans do not hold a favorable view of the young man nor the publicity about him. Those of us who live in the wilderness do not take kindly to individuals who blithely and arrogantly hike unprepared into the bush. When they get into trouble, they often need to be rescued, or worse, like McCandless, they die. Many around the world, though, considered McCandless and his quest noble. Until authorities removed the vehicle in 2020, people from all points on the globe came to Alaska and hiked the dangerous trail to see the bus where McCandless died. Some of these pilgrims also found themselves in peril and needed to be rescued and two unfortunate women perished in their quest to find the magic bus. I've spent a great deal of time thinking about Chris McCandless. I find his egocentric view of the world off-putting, but he seemed to draw people to him. Acquaintances describe him as intelligent, engaging, and kind. Some also classified McCandless as a dreamer who lacked common sense. I don't fault his quest for adventure, and who among us didn't do dumb things when we were 24 years old? I finally decided I couldn't judge Chris McCandless because I didn't know him. He died nearly 30 years ago, but his story remains relevant today. A friend from Talkeetna recently told me that he has met several McCandless types when they pass through town. Talkeetna is considered the gateway to Denali National Park, and many mountain climbers, adventurers, and seekers spend a few days in the village on their searches for accomplishment or awareness. After all, Alaska is one of the last places on the planet where an individual can lose themselves in the wilderness. These are the facts about Chris McCandless's life and death and the demise of those who followed many years later in his footsteps. Chris McCandless grew up in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in Annandale, Virginia. His father, Walt, was a brilliant aerospace engineer who designed advanced radar systems for the space shuttle when he worked for NASA and Hughes Aircraft in the 1960s and 1970s. In 1978, Walt and Chris's mother, Billy, went into business for themselves, launching a consulting firm called User Systems, Inc. 
Chris has six half brothers and sisters from his father's first marriage, and a younger full sister, Corinne. Chris and Corinne were close. Chris was a talented athlete and scholar. He attended Emory University, and he graduated in 1990 with a dual major in history and anthropology. Chris ended his college career with a 3.72 grade point average and was offered a membership in Phi Beta Kappa. He declined the privilege, insisting that titles and honors were irrelevant. A family friend left a $40,000 legacy to pay for Chris's last two years of college. When he graduated, he still had $24,000 left in the fund. He told his parents he planned to use the money to attend law school, but instead he donated it to Oxfam America, a charity organized to fight hunger. By the time Chris graduated from college, he seemed to despise his parents. This hatred stemmed in part from a lie his parents had perpetuated during his upbringing. The summer after Chris graduated from high school, he climbed into his second-hand yellow Datsun and set off to drive across the country. His parents tried to convince him not to go on his own, but they could not dissuade him. He promised to call home regularly, and at first he did, but as the summer progressed, he called less and less frequently. When Chris returned home at the end of the summer, his parents learned that he had gotten lost in the Mojave Desert and nearly died from dehydration. Chris's father implored him to be more careful and to stay in touch with him in the future. Chris resented his father's advice and withdrew from his parents. Walt and Billy McCandless did not know that during Chris's travels, he visited El Segundo, California, where his family had lived during the first six years of his life. He talked to old family friends and neighbors who still lived in the area, and from the stories they told him, he pieced together the facts of his father's divorce from his first wife, Marcia, and his subsequent marriage to Chris's mother, Billy. Walt's split from Marcia was drawn out and messy, and for several years, he maintained two households. Walt and Billy worked together, and they fell in love when Walt and Marcia were having marital problems. After Walt and Marcia reunited, he and Billy continued their relationship. Two years after Chris was born, Walt fathered another son, Quinn McCandless, with Marcia. Soon after that, Billy gave birth to Corinne. The women in Walt's life eventually discovered his infidelities. Marcia divorced Walt, and Walt fled to the East Coast with Billy, Chris, and Corinne. Walt and Billy then married. Chris believed nothing was more important than honesty, and he could not forgive his parents for withholding the truth about their relationship during his early childhood. Knowledge of their deception created an unfordable chasm between Chris and his parents. Chris told his sister Corinne that when he graduated from college, he planned to let his parents think he intended to go to law school, but instead he would divorce them and never contact them again. He remained true to his word. He donated the $24,000 remaining in his education fund to charity 
and then he climbed in his Datsun and set off on an adventure, never to return. Chris's animosity toward his parents explains why he did not contact them, but Chris and Corinne were close, yet he did not call or write her either. Corinne believes Chris feared that his parents would find out and try to bring him home if he called her. Chris wanted total independence, so he left home and never looked back. Chris headed west, and when he reached the Lake Mead Recreational Area, he ignored posted warnings about off-road driving and camped in a dry riverbed near the south end of Lake Mead. Two days after he set up camp, a violent afternoon thunderstorm surprised him. As the rain rushed down the wash, creating a river where there had been none before, Chris grabbed his tent and belongings and moved to higher ground. The flash flood did not carry off his car, but it got the engine wet. Chris drained the vehicle's battery trying to restart the engine. Instead of seeking help to charge the battery, Chris abandoned his car. He saw the loss of his vehicle as a sign to rid himself of unnecessary baggage. He made a pile of what little paper currency he carried and set it on fire, burning his money. Now... Chris believed he would genuinely begin anew. Chris took a snapshot of his burning money and wrote about it in his journal. He chronicled his other many adventures in his journal and then left it with a friend before traveling to Alaska. Chris hiked and explored the Southwest for the next two months, meeting other drifters along the way. By this point, he often referred to himself as Alexander or Alex, and he sometimes wrote his name as Alexander Supertramp. He referred to himself in the third person in his journal, writing about himself as a literary character. Chris wandered north to South Dakota in September 1990 and met Wayne Westerberg, who gave Chris a temporary job at his grain elevator. Wayne liked Chris, and the two became friends. As the weather cooled, Chris headed south. He bought a canoe and attempted to paddle the lower portion of the Colorado River to the Gulf of California. Even at this point in his journey, Chris did not bother to look at a map and see he'd chosen an impossible course. Luckily for him, some Mexican duck hunting guides found Chris and gave him and his canoe a ride to the ocean. He would not be as fortunate in Alaska. There would be no one present on the Stampede Trail to rescue him. During his canoe adventure to Mexico, Chris subsisted on little more than five pounds of rice. He lost 25 pounds, but he felt healthy. The experience convinced him that he could also live on rice when he finally made it to the wilderness of Alaska. In March 1992, Chris returned to Carthage, South Dakota, to work at Wayne Westerberg's grain elevator. Wayne was fond of Chris and said he was a good worker. He tried to talk Chris into staying in Carthage, but Chris only wanted to work long enough to make money to buy gear for his Alaska adventure. 
On April 15th, McCandless said goodbye to Westerberg and his other South Dakota friends, and he asked Westerberg to hold on to his journal and photo album until he returned from Alaska. Then McCandless set out on his way, riding freight trains and hitchhiking to Alaska. McCandless made the trip from Carthage to Laird River Hot Springs on the edge of the Yukon Territory in just six days. But he waited two more days at Laird before he found another ride. Gaylord Stuckey from Indiana was delivering a motorhome to a Fairbanks RV dealer, and he agreed to give McCandless a ride to Fairbanks. When they arrived in the city, Stuckey took McCandless to a grocery store where Chris bought a large bag of rice. Chris told Stuckey he planned to spend several months in the wilderness subsisting on the rice and berries and other plants. Stuckey tried to convince Chris that there was still two to three feet of snow on the ground, and Chris would not find any berries for quite a while. Stuckey told Chris he should wait a few weeks before embarking on his adventure. But Chris was determined. He wanted to start hiking. Stuckey dropped Chris at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. At the university bookstore, Chris purchased a copy of a well-known field guide to the region's edible plants, Tanina Plant Lore, an ethnobotany of the Denina Indians of south-central Alaska by Priscilla Russell Carey. While in Fairbanks, Chris also purchased a semi-automatic 22 caliber Remington with a 4x20 scope, plus four 100 round boxes of hollow-point long rifle shells. Wayne Westerberg received a postcard from McCandless postmarked in Fairbanks on April 27th. At the end of his greeting, Chris wrote, I now walk into the wild. It was the last communication Westerberg had from McCandless. On April 28th, McCandless continued his journey. A few miles outside of Fairbanks, Jim Galleon, an electrician on his way to Anchorage, pulled his gray Ford pickup to the side of the road and offered Chris a ride. Chris introduced himself as Alex, and he told Galleon he wanted a ride to the edge of Denali National Park, where he intended to walk deep into the wilderness and live off the land for a few months. Galleon noted that McCandless's backpack weighed no more than 25 to 30 pounds. It seemed to him too light a load to subsist for several months in the bush, especially in the early spring. The temperature during the day was barely 30 degrees Fahrenheit and would dip down into the teens during the night. A foot and a half of snow covered the ground. McCandless told Galleon he only carried a 10-pound bag of rice for food. Galleon noted that the cheap hiking boots McCandless wore were neither waterproof nor insulated. McCandless had no axe, no snowshoes, no bug dope, no compass, and no decent map. He did have a basic state road map, and he pointed to the dash line near the town of Healy, representing the Stampede Trail. McCandless told Galleon to drop him at the head of the trail. Galleon tried to talk McCandless out of his plan. He told Chris that the caliber 
of the rifle he was carrying was too small to protect himself against a charging bear or an angry moose. Galleon offered to drive Chris to Anchorage, buy him some decent gear, and bring him back to the Stampede Trail. But McCandless refused. He said, No thanks, anyway. I'll be fine with what I've got. Three hours out of Fairbanks, Galleon dropped Chris on the Stampede Trail. Even though they were too big for Chris, Galleon insisted he take his rubber work boots. Let me take a short break. As I've told you in other episodes, I'm an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I often base at least part of one of my novels on some of the true stories I tell you about in my podcast. I loosely base my novel, Carlick Bones, on four true stories. Let me tell you the first harrowing tale. Dave, a visitor to our lodge, told me this story. In the 1970s, Dave and a friend were in the Air Force, stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base near Anchorage, and they were drawn for bear hunting permits on Kodiak Island. They eagerly flew to the south end of the island for their hunt, but when the time came for the charter plane service to pick them up, the plane never arrived. At first, they thought the weather must be bad in town, but as the days and weeks passed, they realized the charter service forgot them. The charter plane office lost the information about their return flight because they kept track of their charters by writing the trips on a large day-of-the-week wall calendar. Poor weather on the day of the scheduled pickup canceled the flight for the day. One of the office staff apparently threw away the calendar page without writing the pickup on the next day and no one in the office remembered the stranded passengers. The pilot who dropped off the men was on vacation at the time. Finally, the families of the two men began calling the charter service, and when the pilot returned from his trip, the office staff asked him if he recalled flying Dave and his friend. The pilot immediately flew out to retrieve the stranded hunters, but Dave told me that when the plane landed, he was perched in a small tree. A few inches of snow covered the ground, but he saw no footprints leading up to the tree. He said he was so weak and delirious from hunger, he couldn't remember how long he had been sitting in the tree. If you get a chance to read Carlick Bones, I'm sure you will spot remnants of this true tale. Carlick Bones and all of my books are available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. In 1961, when Utan Construction won a contract to build a road along the Stampede Trail from a remote mine to the main highway, the company purchased three junked Fairbanks City buses to house the laborers. The project was halted in 1963, and UTAN removed two of the buses, but left the third vehicle, Fairbanks City Bus Number 142, halfway out the trail to serve as a backcountry shelter for hunters and trappers. The derelict vehicle, outfitted with bunks and a barrel stove, rested 25 miles west of Healy 
for nearly 60 years. More than a year before he traveled to Alaska, McCandless had survived for over a month beside the Gulf of California on five pounds of rice and any fish he could catch. He believed he could do the same thing in Alaska by supplementing his diet of rice with wild game and plants. Instead of hauling more food in his pack, McCandless carried nine or ten paperback books, including classics by Thoreau, Tolstoy, and Gogol. He did not pack paper, so he kept an abbreviated journal on a few blank pages in the back of Tanina plant lore. On his second day of hiking, Chris reached the Teklanika River. Ice lined the edges of the river, but water flowed freely down the main channel. Still, the river's volume was low, and McCandless quickly waded across to the other side. He apparently did not understand that this river would become a raging torrent once the snowfields at its headwaters thawed. By midsummer, the volume of water rushing down the river would increase by nine to ten times what it was when Chris blithely crossed it in late April. On May 1st, 20 miles down the trail from where Galleon had dropped him, Chris found the old Fairbanks City bus sitting near the Shoshana River. The bus had been transformed into a makeshift cabin with a bunk and a barrel stove. Previous visitors to the bus had stocked it with matches, bug dope, and other essentials. Chris referred to the vehicle in his journal as the Magic Bus. At first, Chris struggled to shoot game, but his skills improved, and he bagged squirrels, porcupines, spruce grouses, ducks, and other small game. He kept a running total of the wild game and plants he ate in the back of the plant lore book. One day, Chris shot a moose, but he soon regretted killing the large animal because he could not preserve the meat. He tried drawing the meat, but he did not cut it into thin enough strips and the meat rotted before it dried. The small game he shot had little fat and provided Chris with fewer calories than he expended. He quickly began losing weight from his already thin frame. On May 5th, Chris left the bus and continued hiking. The ground became too boggy, though, and Chris finally returned to the bus where he remained for the rest of the summer. On July 3rd, McCandless decided to return to civilization. He hiked through the heavy rain and found lakes where there had been only frozen ground in April. When he reached the Teklanika, the river was at flood stage, and Chris saw no way to cross it. Just downstream from where the trail met the river, white water boiled through a narrow gorge. Chris knew he would not survive if he tried to cross the river here. If Chris had hiked a mile upstream, he would have reached an area where the river broadened into braided channels, and he probably could have found a place to cross. He would have known about this wide river plain if he'd bothered to carry a USGS topographic map with him. A map also would have informed McCandless of a U.S. Geological Survey gauging station one-half mile downstream at the entrance to the gorge. An inch-thick steel cable spanned the canyon at the station, and a basket on the cable allowed hydrologists to travel back and forth across the river. If Chris had known the cable and basket were there, 
he would have had a short ride to the other side of the river. Chris knew none of this, though, and he saw his situation as hopeless, at least at present. He returned to the bus. Chris was probably not too concerned about the state of the Teklanika River. He knew he would likely be able to hike out in the fall when the temperature dropped and the river began to freeze. He also likely knew he could travel out with hunters when they arrived at the bus during the fall hunting season. Chris returned to his routine of shooting game and collecting wild plants. Tanina plant lore became his Bible for plant collection, and he followed it carefully. Still, Chris could not gather enough berries or game meat, and his weight continued to drop. Several self-portraits found on the film in his camera depict Chris as happy but dangerously thin. Chris mentioned nothing in his journal about feeling ill until July 30th, when he wrote, in all capital letters, EXTREMELY WEAK Fault of P.O.T. period seed. Much trouble just to stand up. Starving. Great jeopardy. After July 30th, his physical condition rapidly declined, and he died sometime around August 19th. John Krakauer has spent a great deal of time and resources over the years trying to figure out what killed Chris McCandless. According to the medical examiner, McCandless starved to death, but Krakauer thinks there is more to the story. Although he was balancing on the precipice of starvation, something catastrophic happened around July 30th to push Chris over the edge. Krakauer believes McCandless ate something toxic. From the notation he left in his journal, McCandless apparently thought he'd consumed poisonous potato seeds. Wild potatoes grow in abundance near the old bus on the Stampede Trail, and Chris mentions eating them many times in his journal. At first, Chris consumed only the roots of the wild plant, But on July 14th, according to his journal, he began collecting and eating the seeds of the plant as well. A few days later, he got sick and became very weak. In his first article about McCandless for Outside Magazine, Krakauer postulated that McCandless confused wild potatoes with the nearly identical wild sweet pea. The two plants are challenging to tell apart and the wild sweet pea is considered toxic. After thinking about Chris's situation, though, Krakauer decided it was unlikely McCandless would confuse wild sweet peas for wild potatoes. In Tanina Plant Lore, the plant guide McCandless carried, the author Priscilla Carey clearly describes how to differentiate the two plants and Krakauer believes McCandless carefully followed the guide. In his book, Into the Wild, Krakauer suggests that McCandless ate both the wild potato plants and their seeds, and the seeds contained a toxin. Botanists had never before considered the seeds of the wild potato toxic, but recent research suggests the seeds contain a neurotoxin. 
While healthy individuals are not affected by this neurotoxin, it adversely affects malnourished consumers, causing severe weakness and neuron death, which leads to paralysis. By July 1992, McCandless had lost a great deal of weight, but it seems likely he ingested something to push him over the edge and cause his precipitous decline and death. Krakauer has worked hard to discover the exact agent which led to his death. While this information is interesting and might be important for those who gather and eat wild plants, I think it misses the point as far as McCandless is concerned. Chris McCandless died because he did not adequately prepare himself for how to survive in the Alaska wilderness. The seeds likely would not have killed Chris if he wasn't already so emaciated. Furthermore, McCandless would have found a way to return to Healy if he'd carried a topographic map. Also, he could have dried nutritious foods such as moose meat if he'd taken the time to learn the proper methods. Most importantly, Chris McCandless probably would have survived if he'd taken more food and better supplies with him on his adventure. The story of Chris McCandless is a tragic cautionary tale. Dreaming, searching, and introspection are luxuries for the privileged few in this world. Too many people must struggle every day to stay alive. And I wonder what they think of someone who burns his money and wanders unprepared into the wilderness. Still, there's nothing wrong with searching for the meaning of your life, and I don't fault McCandless for this pursuit. He was careless and unprepared, though. After the release of John Krakauer's book, Into the Wild, and particularly after the movie's release, people around the world elevated Chris McCandless to folk hero status and dozens have followed in his footsteps down the stampede trail to the magic bus. Many of these people are even less prepared than Chris McCandless was for foray into the Alaska wilderness. Over the years, the Alaska State Troopers have rescued scores of misguided pilgrims. Hikers often get into trouble when they try to cross the dangerous Teklanika River. Two individuals have died trying to reach the spot where Chris McCandless's life ended. In 2010, Claire Ackerman, 29, from Switzerland, and her boyfriend, Etienne Gross, 27, from France, set out searching for the bus where McCandless died. When the pair reached the Teklanika River, they tied themselves to a rope that a previous hiker had stretched from one bank of the mighty river to the opposite shore. Ackerman and Gross lost their footing about halfway across the raging river, and the rope dipped into the current. Gross grabbed a knife and cut himself free and swam to shore, but Ackerman could not free herself. Gross went back for her, but by the time he reached her, she had already drowned. On July 25, 2019, newlyweds Veronica Nikinava, 24, and Piotr Markalau, 24, from Belarus, attempted to cross the Teklanika River, searching for the bus. Nikinava lost her footing 
and the river swept her downstream. Her husband ran along the shoreline, chasing her downriver. He caught up with her and was able to recover her body, but it was too late. She had already died. The pair had been married less than a month. In June 2020, authorities finally decided the only way to solve the problem of the dangerous pilgrimage to the old Fairbanks bus on the Stampy Trail was to remove the bus. A Chinook helicopter lifted the rusty vehicle into the air and transported it to the road, where it was loaded onto a flatbed and moved to an undisclosed location. The bus will likely find a new home in a Fairbanks museum. Only time will tell if the removal of the bus will be enough to stop the McCandless pilgrimage. If you have not read Into the Wild by John Krakauer, I highly recommend it. You might disagree with Krakauer's assumptions, but he eloquently tells a provocative story about the seekers and the wanderers among us. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier. Mm-hmm.